good morning. My name is Brian, <clears throat> and this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 20. Uh, psalm 20 is a psalm of the king. It's a royal psalm. And while you're finding your place this morning in your Bibles, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about Zion. Not the Zion that you'll find in Psalm 20, but Zion Williamson, the basketball player. Zion Williamson, this year in his freshman year at Duke University, was the starting power forward where he averaged 23 points a game on 68% shooting from the floor and collected nine rebounds a contest. Now, if you're not a basketball aficionado, that's really good. So good, in fact, that he won the consensus college basketball player of the year and then was the number one overall pick in the NBA draft going to the New Orleans Pelicans. I've never seen anyone like Zion Williamson. He's six foot seven, uh, weighs 285 pounds, which means he's going to be the second heaviest player in the NBA. But he has a vertical jump that's comparable to Michael Jordan. It's about 45 inches off the ground. That means that when he jumps, the bottom of his feet come to about here, okay? He's built like a grizzly bear, but he moves like a gazelle. And he plays basketball like Charles Barkley just ate Michael Jordan. <laughs> he is a generational talent. And it was announced earlier this week that Zion Williamson has signed the richest rookie shoe deal in the history of the NBA. Jordan, the Jordan brand, a subsidiary of the Nike company, is going to pay Zion Williamson $100 million over the next seven years to wear Nikes. Now, why would anybody pay someone $100 million to wear their shoes? It's because Nike knows that the next generation of basketball players, millions of boys and girls, are going to watch Zion Williamson play basketball. And when they watch Zion Williamson play basketball, they're going to want to imitate Zion Williamson. And when they want to imitate Zion Williamson, they're going to wear what Zion Williamson wears. They want to buy the shoes that Zion Williamson wears. Because you see, we always want to imitate those we look up to. Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. We trust in the name of the Lord our God when we follow a king who does the same. We trust in the name of the Lord our God when we follow a king who does the same. And we're going to look at Psalm 20 under two headings this morning. In verses 7 and 8, I want you to see placing our trust. Placing our trust. And then in verses 1 through 6 and verse 9, so the rest of the psalm, I want you to see the people's prayers and a king's trust. So placing our trust and then a people's prayers and the king's trust. Look with me, if you will, at Psalm uh, 20, starting at verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard, you, and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. 
May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to consider your word and to consider this prayer for a king who is going to battle. I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus in him only. Amen. So first of all, this morning, let's consider together placing your trust, placing your trust. So let's start by looking at verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, David this morning is telling us that we're all trusting in something. The question isn't if you're trusting in something, you will, it's inevitable, it's inescapable, it's part of being human. You are a dependent creature, and so you're going to be trusting in something. It's not a question of if you're trusting in something, it's a question of what you're going to be trusting in. You see, when we go to battle, which is every day in the Christian life, we're always trusting in something for our safety and security. We're always looking to something to win the battle, to guarantee victory, to promise success, to achieve glory. And on the one hand, David is saying, some trust in chariots and horses. And what David is talking about here is military advantage. You see, in the days before tanks and planes and missiles, chariots and horses gave you a distinct military advantage, a distinct tactical advantage. And that advantage, that tactical advantage, was often leveraged into victory. So, for example, in the Civil War, the advent, the invention of the Spencer repeating rifle, historians would say, changed the course of the war. And as those were given to the Union, it led to the Union's defeat of the South. Or in World War II, the invention of the atomic bomb essentially ended World War II and won the war for the Allies. And it's that kind of military tactical advantage that uh, gets leveraged into the oft-repeated movie line, it looks like you brought a knife to a gunfight. Well, in David's day, chariots and horses were a tactical advantage. And many trusted in chariots and horses. But God's people were supposed to say, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that actually is something that God prescribes in the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17. 
You see, in Deuteronomy, Moses says to the people, okay, when you get into the promised land and you become a nation, you're going to have a king that's going to rule over you. And I'm going to give you some laws. And one of those laws for that king is he's not supposed to multiply horses. Because he, God doesn't want the king to put his trust in military advantage. The Lord wants to teach his people, starting with the king and then with everyone else, that military advantage does not guarantee victory. But instead, you see this theme throughout scripture, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to the Lord. And this is something that God has been teaching his people throughout the course of redemptive history. And it's something that we forget so often that salvation belongs to the Lord. So you go back to Joshua chapter 6. And in Joshua chapter 6, God says to Joshua as they come up to Jericho, here's the military plan. What I want you to do is I want you to start and for six days, once a day, I want you to walk around the city, right? So everybody's walking around the city. But then on day seven, I want you to walk around the city, march around the city with the ark at the front and the priests behind blowing their trumpets seven times. And then when you get around the city, the seventh time there's going to be a loud blow on the ram's horn. And then all the people are going to shout and the walls are going to fall down and you'll have the victory. Now, if you were leading an army in that day, you'd kind of be like, huh, what, right? That's not exactly what was commonplace for military advantage in that day. Why? God is teaching his people that salvation belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to the Lord. So then you go to to, uh, Judges chapter 7. And in Judges chapter 7, the Israelites are being threatened by the Midianites. And Gideon is leading the people of Israel. And Gideon has 32,000 men at his disposal to fight the Midianites. But God says, I don't want the people to think that they were delivered by the power of their own hand. So Gideon, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the people, the men who are going to war. And anybody who has any sense of fear, I want you to send them home. And so he sends 22,000 men home. Now you're left with 10,000 men. And God says, no, that's still too many, Gideon. I want you to send them all down to the river and have them drink there at the river. And anyone who laughs the water like a dog, those are the ones we want. And so the people go down to the river. Why? Why? I don't know. Right? So the people go down, the men go down to the river. There are 300 of them that lap water like dogs. And so David distills, excuse me, Gideon distills his army from 32,000 down to 300, and the Lord says, that's what we want. And if you're leading an army in that day, you're scratching your head, but God's trying to teach his people that salvation belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to the Lord. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. And this is something that David would have known personally. David, as he writes this psalm, do you remember... Uh, In 1 Samuel 17, David goes down to bring lunch to his brothers who are on the battlefront as Israel is fighting the Philistines. And he sees this giant there, Goliath, bigger than Zion, right? He's nine feet uh, tall. He probably didn't have the vertical leap, but um, he's nine feet tall, right? And he's taunting the armies of Israel. 
And David says, well, I'll, I'll fight him. Everybody else is afraid. David says, I'll fight him. And Saul says, uh, Saul says, that's great. Here's my helmet. Here's my coat of mail. Here's my sword. And David says, no, I'm, gonna take, I'm not going to take those. I'm going to gather five smooth stones and go out and face Goliath. And he goes out and faces Goliath. And Goliath is coming at him with sword and spear and javelin. And David says, I'm going to strike you down so that the people of Israel watching today will know that deliverance doesn't come from sword and spear and javelin, but deliverance comes from the name of the Lord. You see, because salvation belongs to the Lord. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to the Lord. And then this is something that David would have known at the end of his life. You see, in 1 Chronicles 21, David uh, is tempted. It literally says that Satan incited David to take a census. And as you're taking a census, what are you doing? You're weighing your military advantage, right? And so David gives in and he takes a sentence and God, he takes a census and God sends judgment. Uh, and, and he says to David, you can choose which way you want judgment. You can have three years of famine or you can have three months of the sword of your enemy against you, or you can have three days of my sword against you. And David says, O oh Lord, your mercy is great. And so he takes the three days of the sword of the Lord against him. And so God says, sends the angel of the Lord to carry out this judgment, and 70,000 men are killed in those three days. And the angel of the Lord comes to the threshing floor of Orni and the Jebusite. And the Lord says, stop. He's about to destroy Jerusalem, but the Lord stops him. And he says, go no further. And then God says, I want you to set up an altar at the threshing floor of Orni and the Jebusite. So that you remember that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation doesn't come from military might. And the Lord can stop judgment. The Lord can stop his judgment. And so this is something that God has been teaching his people over and over again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to the Lord. So I want to ask you this morning, where are you looking to for victory, for success, for glory, for deliverance, for salvation? And some of you are saying, oh, I don't look to chariots and horses. That's good. I wouldn't suspect you would. We're much too, we're much too sophisticated for that these days. But Paul in the New Testament in Philippians 3 says that we're tempted to put confidence in the flesh. And I would posit to you this morning that putting confidence in the flesh or putting confidence, putting your trust in chariots and horses are essentially the same thing because you're trusting in something other than Jesus for victory. Oh, we might give lip service to Jesus, but all too often aren't we really trusting in our parenting approach? our schooling style, 
our political affiliation, our vocational success, our emotional intelligence, our racial awareness, our denominational affiliation, our worship style, our theology, our scripture memorization. Aren't we really putting our trust in these things? Now, it's not wrong to, to have those views or even to have those identity markers, but it's wrong to put your ultimate trust in them. How do you know when you're putting your ultimate trust in those things other than Jesus? I think you begin to see pride welling up in your heart. And you begin to look down on those who aren't like you. You begin to draw lines of those who are in and those who are out. And Paul is saying, put no confidence in the flesh. Because you're either putting your confidence in the flesh or you're putting your confidence in Jesus. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Where are you putting your trust this morning? It changes from moment to moment and day to day. Where are you putting your trust that word trust uh, in the Hebrew is the word zakar. And zakar means to remember or to be mindful. And it's translated trust because the idea is it's remembering with hope. It's remembering with faith. It's remembering in a way that shapes your future. And we always remember to shape our future. Why do you remember where you've put your car keys? Some of you remember where you put your car keys, right? The rest of you ask those that remember where you put your car keys, right? Why do you remember where you put your phone? Again, some of you remember where you put your phone. You ask the other, anyway. So why is it that you remember? Because at one point, you're going to need to drive your car. At one point, you're going to need to make a phone call. You remember things in order to shape your future. Why is it that you remember that story from your childhood? Because that story from your childhood shapes your character. It shapes your story. It shapes who you are today. It shapes your identity. You see, what we remember shapes us. We are remembering creatures. In fact, that same verb, zakar, which means to remember or to pay attention to, the noun of that verb means male or man which maybe isn't good because men don't always remember things very well, but that, that's, that's what it looks like here. Why? Because fundamentally, we're remembering creatures. What are you remembering? What are you mindful of? Are you mindful of what you're mindful of? Are you paying attention to what you're paying attention to? What is it that you're trusting in? What you're remembering and trusting go together. Where are you putting your confidence. Some put their trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Then secondly this morning, I want to consider the people's prayers and a king's trust. This is verses 1 through 6 and verse 9. Now a couple of background notes that you need to know here, and, and let's start with verse 1 here. Look at your text, and there we've got this phrase, the name of the God of Jacob. Now that, that word name appears three times in the text, verse 1, verse 5, and verse 7. 
And this isn't some sort of magical incantation, right? I'm just going to repeat this name seven times, and then I'm going to be good. No, that's what the heathens would do. When the Bible is talking about the name, it's talking about God's self-revelation to us. He reveals his name so that we can call on him. And in revealing his name, he's revealing something about his character. And then it's the name of the God of Jacob. And the God of Jacob here is an abbreviation for a longer phrase that would have been the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And as David pens it here, I think he specifically wants us to hearken back to Genesis chapter 35. Can I get that first slide here? Genesis chapter 35, where Jacob says this, Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. Right? He's saying, this is the God, this is who God is. God is a God who answers me in the day of my distress. That's Jacob's God. And now David, in his day of trouble or distress, it's the same Hebrew word, is his prayer is, may the God of Jacob protect you. May the God who answers me in the day of my distress protect you in the day of your distress. Thanks. And then in verse 2, we have two words that I want to call your attention to. One is sanctuary, and the other uh, is Zion. So sanctuary, the literal word here is holiness. And God's holiness was represented among his people first in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple. And if I can get that, that slide of the temple here... This is the physical place where God came and dwelled among his people. He started in the tabernacle and then uh, in the temple. And that temple was built on a mountain, which is Mount Zion. Mount Zion, if I can get that next uh, slide then. Now, this is a picture of Mount Zion here. Oh, well, let me do it over here since, so you guys can see it. Uh, this is a picture of Mount Zion. And sometimes Zion refers to the mountain itself, but other times it refers to the city. And you see here this city, that's the city of Jerusalem that's on Mount Zion. So sometimes Zion refers to the city, but sometimes Zion refers to the temple. Here's the temple that's built on, within the city that's on the mountain. And so when Zion is referred to, it can refer to the temple, the city, or the mountain. Why is the temple built on a mountain? I mean, if you think of the architecture of this, it's much harder to build a, a, a picture like this, an image like this, a building like this on a mountain than it would be on a flat place, right? Why is it built on Mount Zion? Can I get that next slide? Second Chronicles 3.1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, that is the temple, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Now, first of all, we need to stop there. If, if you've read your Bible a lot, if you're a biblical scholar, you may remember that phrase, Mount Moriah. It appears in Genesis chapter 22, 
when God calls Abraham to go and sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loved, Isaac. And Abraham goes up to Mount Moriah and he goes to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And God stays his hand and he provides a ram as a substitute. So that's one image that you have going on here where, uh, where the, te- the temple is built. But then you have, uh, it goes on, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Do you remember that? The threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. This is where God stopped his judgment for David's sin of the census. So it's here on Mount Zion that where the worlds of Abraham and David collide that God has Solomon build the temple. So that's background as we come to verses 1 through 6 and then verse 9. Now when when we look at this psalm, uh, scholars agree that the occasion for this psalm was a king preparing for battle. The occasion of the psalm is a king preparing for battle. Usually psalms are written in the first person. It's I, me, my, because the psalmist is praying for himself. But Psalm 20 is different. In Psalm 20, it focuses on the second person, you and your, because the people are praying for someone else. You see, the people in Psalm 20, that you that they're praying for, that you is the king. The people are praying for their king as he prepares to go to battle. So the king is going through his pre-battle ritual to consecrate the battle to the Lord, and the people respond with prayer. So so picture it this way. Verse 1 you see the king, and the king is kneeling to pray, and he's asking for God's protection. And the people seeing their king kneeling to pray respond with their own prayer, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And then the king in verse 2 asks for help and for support. And the prayer see the, the, the people see the king uh, offering that prayer. And the people pray, may the Lord send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. And then in verse 3, the king, after he's prayed, he gets up and he offers sacrifices. At this point, he would have been covered in blood. He offers sacrifices, and the people see the king offering sacrifices, and the people pray, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt burnt sacrifices. And then the king, having offered those sacrifices, turns his plans and his strategies over to the Lord. And the people pray, May the Lord grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. 
And then in verse 6, there's a turn or a pivot. One person steps out of the crowd. It's a representative of the people or a priest or perhaps the king himself. And they move from a request to certainty. Look at verse 6. Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. Now where does this certainty come from? Well, some have suggested that this certainty comes from praying in accord with God's will. And others have suggested that this certainty comes from the completion of the sacrifices. And others have suggested that there's been news from the battlefield that the king has won the victory. But regardless of where that certainty comes from, I don't want you to miss the posture of the king. I don't want you to miss the heart of the king. You see, what is the king doing as he's offering prayers and sacrifices? Where is the king putting his trust? The king is fulfilling the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17. He's not trusting in chariots or horses. He's trusting in the name of the Lord his God. You see, the only way that the people can pray, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God is because they're following a king who did it first. The king shows the way. The king sets the pattern. The king is the example. But he's much more than just an example. This king is also their representative. The people's identity and their actions are connected to the king. And you see this in the relationship between verse 1 and verse 9. Can I get that next slide here? At the beginning and the end of Psalm 20, we have this inclusio. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May he answer us in the day we call. And as answer and in the day are repeated, David is trying to show us that their answer is connected to his answer. Their victory is connected to his victory. Their deliverance is connected to his deliverance. You see, the king is their representative, and so they share his destiny. And David would have known what it meant to be a representative of the people. You see, on the day that he went out to face Goliath, he didn't go out in isolation. He went out in representation. He was representing all of Israel as he battled Goliath so that when David won that victory, Israel defeated the Philistines. You see, the people here are praying for their representative. Now, scholars argue that this psalm would have been sung and prayed in the life of Israel whenever a king was preparing for battle. Right? And this would have happened frequently. Israel in the north and Judah in the south would have, were constantly at war with other nations. But in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, Israel, fell to Assyria. And at that point, this psalm would no longer have been sung in the north. It would have fallen silent. It would have been forgotten because there were no more kings preparing for battle. 
And in 586 BC, Judah, the southern kingdom, fell to Babylon. And at that point, this psalm would have never been sung in the south. It would have fallen silent. It would have been forgotten because there were no more kings preparing for battle. And do you know why Israel and Judah fell? The book of Kings tells us that king after king after king failed to keep the Torah. They failed to keep the law of the king. They began to put their trust in chariots and horses. They were no longer putting their trust in the name of the Lord their God. King after king broke the covenant. You could say the road to Babylon was paved with a broken covenant. The line of kings had failed. But around 400 B.C., 180 years after the southern kingdom was conquered and the people were sent into Israel, excuse me, into exile, redactors came and they took all of these different psalms that were written and they began to take this collection and that psalm and they began to stitch them together in a book, the book of psalms, the final form of the book of psalms that you have today. And at that time, when there was no king on the throne, and there was no throne, the redactors included this psalm. This psalm that was a psalm for the people to pray for the king as he was preparing for battle, as a representative for his people. And they placed it right next to Psalm 19, which is a Torah psalm, as if to say... Another king is coming. One who will keep the Torah. One who will uphold the covenant. He will go to battle. He will represent his people. He will win the victory. And so Jesus comes. And now we don't pray for him, but he prays for us. And in verse 2, Jesus was the sanctuary. He was where God was dwelling among men, how heaven and earth were brought together. He tabernacled among us. He was the temple. Jesus was the sanctuary. And in verse 1, Jesus wasn't answered in his day of trouble. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus pleads with the Father three times, take this cup of wrath from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Jesus wasn't answered in his day of trouble. But then verse 3, Jesus offered a sacrifice. But unlike the kings of old who offered sacrifices to cover their own sins, King Jesus, who is without sin, offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins. And do you know where? Can I get that slide again? You see here on Mount Zion, right under the temple, there's this little hill, and it's called Golgotha. So there on Mount Zion, on the same mountain where David offered the sacrifice on the altar, remembering that God relented and gave mercy to Jerusalem, on the same mountain where Abraham offered Isaac, 
his son, his only son, whom he loved, where God provided a substitute on this mountain, on this hollowed ground, with the worlds of Abraham and David echoing in the culmination of redemptive history, God offered his son, his only son, whom he loved, Jesus. And in so doing, he stopped judgment and gave mercy to his children. And do you know what Jesus' plans were? Verse 4, Jesus, as the good king, knew that salvation belongs to the Lord. He wasn't looking to military might to conquer his foe. He didn't put on Saul's armor. Instead, he conquered death by dying. Every other unusual head-scratching strategy used in the history of redemption culminates in this paradox. Jesus' strategy, his plan, was to lose in order to win. This king came to die in order that we might live. He wasn't trusting in chariots or horses. He was trusting in the name of the Lord his God because he knew that salvation belongs to the Lord. In verse 4, do you know what his heart's desire was as he's there making that sacrifice on the cross? His only desire was for you completely, wholly, fully, On the cross, as Jesus became sin for us, he remembered you. He saw you. He knew you. And then he cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. And you see, that king, that king, offering that sacrifice secured your salvation. He secured your deliverance. He secured your victory because salvation belongs to the Lord. And when we remember that, verse 5, then we will shout for joy over our salvation and set up our banners in the name of the Lord our God because now we know that God will answer us from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And then more and more we will be able to say, some Trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Because we trust in the name of the Lord our God when we follow a king who's done the same. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of our king. And as the people for years prayed for their king as their representative going to battle, we know now that we have a new and better David, one who didn't need his sins covered but came as the sacrifice so that he could bring us salvation, that he could bring us victory. Father, would you teach our hearts more and more not to put confidence in the flesh, not to put our trust in chariots and horses, but would we trust in the name of the Lord our God? I ask this in the name of your Son, your only Son, whom you love, Jesus. Amen.